Welcome everyone to this very special edition podcast series on the 2020 Bitcoin halving brought to you by our friends at Bitstamp, the original global cryptocurrency exchange. Since 2011, Bitstamp's been the preferred exchange for serious traders and investors everywhere, trusted by over 4 million customers, including top financial institutions. Check them out because they've got some serious professional grade trading technology, including matching engine from NASDAQ, some of the best APIs in the industry and TradeView, their advanced trading interface with live charting and deep analytical tools available on web and mobile. Join 4 million traders and download the Bitstamp app from the App Store or Google Play, or visit bitstamp.net slash pro to get started. bitstamp.net slash pro. And for Bitstamp users, we've got a special. Masari's now offering 25% off Masari Pro, our professional-grade crypto analytics toolkit with best-in-class research and advanced tools to help you identify your next investments. Head over to masari.io and use the offer code Bitstamp to get ahead of the crypto curve. That's masari.io, offer code Bitstamp. With that, let's dive right in. This episode's going to be a good one. All right, everyone. Welcome back to this final special episode. It's part of a series on Bitcoin halving. My guest today is none other than Tour Demister. He's a Bitcoin analyst and investor, has been around the game for probably longer than anyone else on the research side. Um, I actually heard tour for the first time in Las Vegas in December of 2013. It was my first Bitcoin conference and I walked in during his presentation. So I can honestly say that tour is the very first person that I heard presents on Bitcoin way back in the day. Um, he has lived through now three halvings since we just had our film on this on Friday, May 15th. And of course the most recent halving was May 11th. Um, we're going to talk all about the halving, uh, some of the things that tour is looking out for in terms of trends, uh, what he thinks about crypto more generally. He's been outspoken on some projects uh, for sure. He's still most bullish on Bitcoin. And um, generally, I uh, want to get his take on how the industry uh, and its evolution might uh, foreshadow the next phases of, of development and adoption for, uh, for, for Bitcoin and maybe crypto more broadly. But first, um, Tor, why don't we just hear directly from you about your kind of path into Bitcoin and, and, and what made it so sticky for you to get involved uh, as early as you did and then to you know, continue to research and write about it and, and be as thoughtful about its, um, its evolution as you have been. I think the short of it is that I was, I was kind of more on an academic path and I was uh, uh, studying the theory of business cycle. I, I, mm -hmm. I wrote a paper about it back, back in the day as well. And, um, and also uh, looking at history of finance and I just got more and more scared about uh, inflation and, 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 and systemic risk. And so I started leaning more and more towards like, well, what do I do to protect myself I need to have some hard money or like learn about that and how that works. And so I did my own investment newsletter, uh, 2011 to 2013. Uh, that was in Dutch. Um, mm -hmm. so it was like a subscription newsletter. And then later, eventually I just went full time into Bitcoin. I made some, um, some VC investments and, and, uh, yeah, I, I hit the speaker circuit at some point and, uh, haven't looked back since. And, um, and, and so what year was this that you started writing about it? It's 2011, 2012? Yeah, first I started learn about Bitcoin, I think like April 2011. And then I felt this responsibility because I was just about to launch my, my financial newsletter to 
you know, do a good job at reporting on it and, and not like sell snake oil. So it was kind of a, a lucky circumstance that I had the time to really research it. And yeah, I like wrote about it pretty, yeah, like first half of 2011, but it was like, it was coming down from the big bubble. Um, at the time there was a rally to $30, which was crazy because it had barely broken $1 like months before. Uh, mm-hmm. so I kind of discovered Bitcoin on the downslope of that, of that bubble. Um, yeah, like early 2012 is when I started recommending it to my, my subscribers. And, and what about uh, Bitcoin at the time made it recommendation worthy? Because there were no services to really procure this easily. You, you know, you basically had to buy it or um, procure it through either Mt. Gox uh, or maybe BitInstant. But, but there was a period of time there maybe right around uh, when, when it sounds like you recommended this, where for a Western audience, it was, it was pretty inaccessible. So like Bitstamp only came online maybe like summer 2011. So yeah, it was like, I really like racked my brain around how do I recommend people store this stuff? Like I didn't, I couldn't recommend any of the exchanges Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I, I remember writing this manual even of like, uh, no, actually I recorded a, a tutorial video on, you know, you go to, uh, paperwallet.com and then you go offline and then you run the program in your browser and then it'll generate a, a it was a clear text private key and then they had uh-huh. to print it off and then finally send, you know, coins to that. But then it's just, it was just so hokey in, in, in hindsight, mm-hmm. but it was kind of the most yeah the easiest way to do it back then but so how uh wait going back to your question um i forget now could you remind me Uh, yeah just uh how how logistically were people able to acquire it right uh so so it's one thing it was one thing to custody and create the the private key but um how you know buy bitcoin first of all why um and second of all how yeah, the why, the why to me was like the first skepticism that I had was exactly about the scarcity. And then once I was convinced that it was actually scarce, that became the biggest selling point. It's like, oh, so this is digital gold. And then it's mm-hmm. like a no brainer. Like if it really is digital gold and, and like in, in 2010, Satoshi on, on the forums, he, he actually described Bitcoin as like, you know, imagine, imagine a gray metal that has like no, no um, application whatsoever, except you can send it over the internet you can send it digitally on a wire and like what kind of price would that metal have and like that's literally he's describing digital gold so that became you know how i would kind of quote unquote sell it to my audience and myself it's like Mm -hmm. okay well eventually we're going to have inflation eventually we'll have serious problems in the economy and so what you want is you want to have a liquid asset that has low third-party risk uh, and that is not very correlated with anything else. And so that's what Bitcoin has become. So it, I, I still, that's why I wasn't worried about, oh, I can't buy coffee with Bitcoin or I, you could barely buy anything at the time. And even today it's pretty contested, you know, as a, as a payment, as a payment rails, it's not very attractive still. Um, how much of the, uh, that first having narrative was baked into that thesis? Cause if you're recommending this in early 2012, the first have programmatic halvings coming up later in the year, did you, um, did you think at all about the having as an event back then, or was it just part of the kind of programmatic, um, you know, or, or algorithmic central banking function of Bitcoin that made it interesting? Yeah. Because I can imagine at that time, you know, pre first having, that's almost, 
it's an unknown, right? It's almost like a Y2K bug. Um, and you think it could be a positive catalyst, but you're actually not certain that it's going to go off without a hitch. Yeah. Um, to me, the first appeal was just a 21 million cap. Like that was just, wow. Like that's just amazing. Um, mm -hmm. and then like, yeah, gradually like learning, like there's this thing called the having and it's coming up and, and there were, I'd say like, that's been changing over time is that there was quite a lot of fear that, maybe something might go wrong and like, you know, who knows? And, and we might have to fix uh, a bug or, you know, it's, it, it is like you say, it was kind of like a Y2K moment where, Oh my God, what if the computers go from 1999 to 2000? Like something good, you know, and nothing happened. So this is, it was the mm -hmm. same. And then I felt like, again, the having after that, there was again, like some fear mongering. It was, I think the second having was the fear was not so much that Bitcoin would have a problem per se as the protocol, but it was about the mining death spiral. Like, Oh my God, like miners, they're going to lose half their income. And we, we, that was when we had just come off. Uh, well, I don't know. That was after the kind of professionalization of the mining sector. So that would be the first real test. Um, so yeah, that I, was interesting time. I, I, I guess you can almost categorize uh, three different sets of fears, right? First having, it was primarily about this, you know, Y2K element. It's an unknown. It's a known unknown, but it's a, a, a box that has to be checked in, in terms of Bitcoin's maturity as a protocol. The second, you could say it was all about the mining death spiral. And maybe the third, uh, most recently, it's about how sustainable or, or how secure Bitcoin the network is as the uh, percentage of seniorage falls below 2% and then ultimately falls below 1% and, and, and there, there needs to be some type of fee market that develops around it. Um, the uh, mining death spiral in the second halving, this is 2016, um, was largely overdone. Uh, we saw a brief dip in correction and then hash rate, you know, inexorably marched forward as it has basically since inception. We're probably seeing a little bit of that again today. Um, but uh, I'm curious, you know, how you think about uh, this particular having and, and whether it does present any unique new security th threats that need to be de-risked, um, much like the first two cycles, you know, de-risked uh, both the, the unknown, you know, protocol level elements and then the mining elements. Yeah. I mean, one other fear that was like came with the second having in 2016, they kind of go hand in hand uh, with the mining death spiral fear was the, this kind of power concentration, like, Oh my God, like one of one company gets access to almost all the mining. And, you know, to some extent that became true, like Bitmain really, you know, of course, there were many, several mining pools, but Bitmain was providing all the chips to everyone. So they had this unprecedented power in the market. Mm -hmm. And that, of course, makes people fearful about a 51% attack and things like that. Um, so, but yeah, for today, I don't see any of those concerns. Like the, the, the inflation rate was already low. I think we went from, what, 6% to 3% now or something like that, 2.5% maybe. Um, four, to, four, to, four to two. Oh, so it's, it's even it's it's even lower. I mean, the, the big milestone now is it's below the Fed's uh, target inflation rate. Uh huh. And below uh, the actual mining inflation, uh, the gold mining inflation rate. Uh, like not the, not quite. Almost. We're we're very close. But gold is a black box. Bitcoin is a little bit more predictable. Right. I, I'm sure your data is is more up to date than mine. Um, and um, 
So, yeah, in terms of concerns, I mean, the death spiral is not going to happen. I mean, it, it's self-correcting when, the, when all of a sudden a lot of miners plug out their machines, which they have done, the hash rate goes down, and then two weeks later it gets adjusted automatically. So, and then, you know, it's kind of – and then all of a sudden there's a new profit incentive for miners to, to go in again because then they do get some more rewards. Um, yeah, so I just don't see anything other than that it's 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 validating that Bitcoin is just uh, like a perfect little clock and it just keeps ticking and, and we can rely on it. And it's such a contrast with the, this this craziness in, in the central banking world where there's just like all bets are off. Who knows what's mm-hmm. next? Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I don't I don't really have a lot in terms of like, oh, well, I mean, maybe the discussion about is it priced in or not, like my market efficiencies. Some people are saying that the derivatives market in Bitcoin is not very well developed yet. And so that would explain why, you know, the there just wasn't a lot of opportunity for futures traders to to signal like, look, this is a thing and it's going to have an impact. And. And so maybe we'll just have the real effect of the actual scarcity driving prices up in Bitcoin uh, mm-hmm. rather than like, you know, the news that does, does the trick for everyone. What, what are the drivers now? Um, you know, you, you kind of teased this a little bit uh, when you said, hey, it never really bothered me that you, you can't buy a cup of coffee with Bitcoin. I almost felt like um, that was an important um, milestone in, in Bitcoin's evolution, right? It, it, it's almost like the price of Bitcoin reflected the stay, the the phase of adoption, which sounds obvious in hindsight. But but what I mean by that is um, the number of Bitcoins available, the, the the size of the total market cap um, was balanced in such a way that at the point in time where you needed Bitcoin to be used for experimental transactions cups of coffee, right? Uh, sending airdrops to someone overseas, paying for a conference ticket. It was, yep. it was in the, the double digits or the single digits or the, or the low triple digits, which was accessible enough for most people to buy their first Bitcoin. Fast forward you know, through the next cycle, it's hardened. There's a broad enough community. And yes, it's much more expensive for a single Bitcoin. And now there's a meme, oh, you can buy fractions of Bitcoin. Stack sats is like the new retail focus to onboard but at the same time, it is now um, expensive enough uh, at, a, uh, at a whole Bitcoin level where it's starting to look more like a value play for institutional investors and you know, potentially central banks or big asset managers because um, it's, it's got this like Berkshire Hathaway uh, effect where the, the, the price at 10000 almost makes it look more like digital gold than the price at, at 100 when it was more valuable for kind of experimental trade and, you know, yes, Silk Road and gambling apps and the like. Um, that's all narrative, but, but you know, I'm curious, A, what you think about that um, uh, breakdown of, of the narrative cycles of, of Bitcoin. And then maybe more importantly, you know, what about your investment thesis has changed um, over the course of the last, you know, eight years now? Yeah. So in terms of the phases, the way I've looked at Bitcoin is that, you know, from 2009 to 2013, that was what I call the discovery phase, uh, which was Mm -hmm. just like you were saying, experimentation and 
using Bitcoin for all kinds of silly things and gambling. And, and it's great because it allows you to discover what this thing does. It's like it's all a big test net in a way. Uh, and then I would say from 2013, once we had the, uh, the ASIC mining chips and the hardware wallets, it's we kind of went into this infrastructure phase where it was really like some, some more capital became available to really invest in, in building the foundation for eventually the internet of money or um, that kind of thing. Um, and, and so then I feel like we're still in the infrastructure phase, like seven years later, it's still that even like the announcement of, uh, you know, JP Morgan now becoming the bank for uh, Coinbase and, and Gemini to me, that fits in there. It's all about building the rails and it's both legal rails. It's uh, the financial like bridges between the financial industry and Bitcoin. Uh, and then a lot of technological rails with this, uh, the protocol stack of Bitcoin where mm -hmm. it's, it's very clear by now with all this experimentation that you can't just scale a blockchain by uh, boosting the block size. Like that is going to be very cumbersome uh, for people then to run their own nodes. And that's what then undermines the decentralization. So you don't want that. You want to be able to run a blockchain on your phone, like literally a full node, ideally, I would say. So, so, so then the answer is really that in order to scale, you have to uh, have several layers to your protocol stack, just like with the internet that became a stack of protocols, um, not just TCP IP, but also, you know, the other ones on top. Um, and so in Bitcoin, that's, you know, the lightning network, I would count liquid also as part of the protocol stack. And in some way you could, you could even argue that the Bitcoin exchanges have become like a second layer uh, because you, you'll be able to send, in a way, synthesized bitcoins from one exchange to the other. Uh, you can you can send dollars to an exchange and, and own a claim on Bitcoin and never really cash it out. So in a way, that's kind of that's kind of like a because you're not going to pay transaction fees on your purchase. Uh, so anyway, so to me, that is kind of what what this story is about. Like kind of slowly growing into a mature protocol stack, so that. I would say 20, my guess was between 2020 and 2022 is the deployment phase where we really go mainstream and, and people can start using it for many different purposes. Uh, and so, yeah, I agree with you that right now it's, uh, it's, um, it's institutions that are interested and, and it's kind of like a land grab phase where you know this is going to get big and you know this is not correlated with the traditional financial system that's in all kinds of trouble uh, and you know it's really scarce. So let's just kind of, you know, stake our claim and then, and then see what's going to be built on top of it later. So to me, the, 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 the price right now is driven mostly by institutions. I think retail is still not paying attention. I think they'll probably only come back once we're, we're close to 20000 or even beyond $20,000 Bitcoin. Uh, they've just been shaken out. Like they, they, there's lots of despondency. Whoever stayed invested... Uh, mm -hmm. probably got burned you know, between 2018 and now. And so they're kind of like laughed at at the family dinner table now. And I think that's going to, yeah, that, that's going to keep people away for a while still. But meanwhile, it's billionaires, it's family offices, it's, it's large institutions that are kind of uh, taking a, a and, and I think Paul Tudor Jones signaled very well, like his position is like 2%. It's, it's perfect. It's like a, you know, either a call option or an insurance policy that he's taken out. Like, oh, what if something goes wrong with the rest and Bitcoin is going to pay out? So, yeah, you those know, are... 
Uh, there, there's uh, a couple of interesting things about the, uh, the, the halvings. So Dan Matazuski is the former head at Circle Trade, maybe had the, the, the best line of the series so far um, where he said, you know, yeah, it's just been a rocket ship straight up, right? It doesn't matter what time period you're looking at, you know, every, everything looks like it's positively correlated because, you know, Bitcoin has, has just done historically um, – uh, well, on, on just an unprecedented scale in terms of, of investor returns. Um, but the, the thing that I think clouds um, the narrative around, you know, the, the, the having and, and whether it has really any impact on, on price and performance is, uh, is a sense that there's always been a key macro driver outside of the having um, in, in these different cycles. You know, the first one, uh, I would argue, and, and this is where I got my first exposure to, to, to Bitcoin, at least about learning about it, was, uh, was around the sovereign debt crises um, and the Eurozone crisis in, in 2011 and, and uh, the S&P downgraded U.S. debt. Um, and, um, and, and, you know, just generally in that phase, there was enough, you know, true believers and, and hobbyists that they brute forced the infrastructure into existence that made it accessible to the kind of early, early investors. Um, the second wave you know, arguably it was around the ICO craze, right? It was, it was actually less about Bitcoin. Yes, there was the resolution of the kind of scaling saga and SegWit2x and, and the New York agreement, blah, blah, blah. Um, but, uh, but, but really, you know, the beginning of that, that super cycle was, was more about Ethereum and, and all of the, you know, uh, the, the you know, fast money that, that was flowing into the system around ICOs. Um, it really wasn't until... Uh, and, and then, you know, kind of going into the cycle, we've got the coronavirus. So um, you have people thinking about all hard money and all um, uh, store of value investments as safe plays right now, right? Uh, if you're talking about property, you're talking about gold, you're talking about, you know, other physical goods. Um, and, and Bitcoin for the first time seems to be, uh, you know, kind of lumped into that. So having or no, I would, I would think that this next cycle is going to be more about response to the coronavirus and whether Bitcoin is a part of the solution for states, for institutions, for, for individuals. Um, how, have you, uh, how have you thought about this or, or, or have you tried to quantify this in, in your research? Yeah, to me, I mean, in a way, I think the, the, the stock to flow model kind of plays into the having a lot where it seems like the, 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 you know, the, the fair value of Bitcoin all of a sudden jumps after the supply gets, it gets cut down. And then people who are critical of that model say like, well, you know, my motivation to buy was not that there's a having my motivation was just that there's a cap at 21 million and, and I just buy into the scarcity. I don't care when, when the cuts happen. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, I, I I think the main drivers are indeed, you know, the COVID and now liquidity and debt crisis that has come with it. Um, and so in terms of like where I look, how I look at Bitcoin, how to value it, I, I, we put out a piece in 2019 about uh, different valuation approaches. And to me, what makes most sense is that um, you want to look at what the people are doing and feeling who have been holding Bitcoin for a long time. And, and the reason I say this is that in a way, they're they're the buyers and sellers of last resort. Like that, of course, we don't have a central bank, but like in, for lack of that, well, you look at the whales because they're going to be the ones that can fundamentally drive the market, and also they have the buying power to buy the dips, and and so their confidence matters a lot. 
And um, with gold, you you know, imagine trying to trying to figure out what gold whales are doing. That's very very hard because we don't have. If only we had a ledger where we could see, even if we couldn't identify who it was, at least if old gold was being sold or not. We don't have that. But in Bitcoin, we do. It's the blockchain. And so you can look at when old coins are moving and how much are they moving and then kind of uh, filter out the noise because a lot of the activity on the blockchain is maybe like a trader who just moves in and out of Bitcoin every week. Even if mm -hmm. he has large volume, that's not, doesn't really mean much for the, the, where the mindset of the large holders are. So, uh, you know, one measure that I like is the, uh, the Bitcoin hodler net position change. So it's basically kind of like, it's, it's a little bit like insider trading. Like you can, you can just with publicly traded stocks, you can see like, are the insiders buying or selling? Uh, and that's an important signal. Like, do they have confidence? And so in Bitcoin, I don't see, you know, uh, except for the end of 2019, there was this, yeah, when we broke down from 6,000, there was a bit of a blip where like some long-term holders did sell. Uh, but other than that, we've just seen steady accumulation uh, among whales so that's what they're actually doing is that they're holding. They're not, they're not dishoarding. They're not selling, uh, at least based on what we can see on the blockchain. And then the other um, kind of uh, valuation approach that I like is um, the net unrealized profit and loss. So that's a bit of a mouthful. But what it basically means is that you look at all the Bitcoins that are there on the ledger, and then you look when, they, when did they move the last time? And so for every Bitcoin, you're going to look like what was their price when it last moved? What was its price when it last moved? And you put all those together and then you can compare the current market cap, which is all the coins in circulation times the current price with that um, kind of um, adjusted market cap, which is like literally when everybody probably bought. And so comparing those two, you can see is the Mr. Market as a whole, is he uh, looking at paper profits or paper losses in dollar terms? Does that make sense? No, it 100% it, it does. And, and so we, you know, we include this stat um, on, uh, on Asari and, and CoinMetrics has done you know, right. a bit of work here as well. You know, basically market value to realized value, realized okay. value being when these, when these different mm -hmm. transaction outputs move and change over. Um, taking the kind of timestamp price at, at, at kind of the last movement. Thanks to our sponsor, Bitstamp, for making this special halving series possible. Bitstamp's the original global crypto exchange. We're proud to be celebrating their third Bitcoin halving. Doesn't get much more OG than that. Since 2011, Bitstamp's been the preferred exchange for serious traders and investors worldwide with over 4 million customers, including top financial institutions. They've got some serious trading tech matching engine from NASDAQ, the best APIs in the industry, and TradeView, their advanced trading interface with live charting and deep analytical tools that are available on web and mobile. So you can join the 4 million traders on Bitstamp by downloading their app at the App Store or Google Play, or go to bitstamp.net slash pro to get started. And a reminder for Bitstamp users, Masari is now offering 25% off of Masari Pro, our professional analytics toolkit with best-in-class research and advanced tools to help identify your next investments using promo code BITSTAMP. That's masari.io, offer code BITSTAMP to get ahead of the crypto curve. What's interesting is every single time historically, and there's only been a few instances of this, but every single time that the current market value has fallen below the realized value, basically meaning that on, on net, um, the holder base was underwater at current prices. There's been a sharp rebound. Um, so, you know, that, that 
one, uh, that, that ratio of one seems to be a bit of a magic number for predicting market bottoms. Uh, and and it, it makes uh, at least a little bit of intuitive sense because uh, psychologically speaking, most investors hate selling their losers, right? Because they're, they're hoping that it's going to come back up and, and that they'll be made whole. Um, so it kind of does, you know, form this lower bound uh, for the true believers and, and the folks that are, are just going to help put the bottom in because at some point it, it doesn't make sense for them to, to, to sell. If they're already down, you know, 85% peak to trough, then, you know, what's the other 15%? Let's just hold it and, and, and like ride this thing out. Yeah, um, and then that has a ripple effect on the rest of the holder base. It's a, it's a really strong psychological effect that like, that's one of the main biases in all markets is that, like you said, investors hate to sell their losers. And so in a way they hold on too long, even if they can't afford it really. And then when they're forced to sell, then you get this like puke phase, like the real capitulation. And that's what you can see in that unrealized PL is that like, yeah, you see clear puke phase in early 2015. And then again, and that's what, like you said, when the, when the realized cap goes under the current market cap. Uh, again, we saw that in January 2019, and actually uh, early this year, we saw it very, very briefly that Bitcoin did go under, um, like that value went negative again. So all of a sudden, mm-hmm. but of course it was so brief, and, I, and, and based on the stat I talked about before, like what are the whales actually doing? The whales were just sitting tight, like they didn't care. Um, mm-hmm. but sentiment wise, it did kind of like hurt some people that like, Oh my God, I'm like looking at negative values. So what that means to me is it's a shakeout event. Like it just shook out the weekends. And right now we're back in like sentiment wise, we're back pretty optimistic. Like it's like people are looking at some moderate profits right now in Bitcoin and, and like combined with everything that's going on, I don't see, cause what you want to look for is exuberance. Like you, you want to in that, that measure, you want to look at, are we at, you know, are, is the average investor at like 2x their original investment? Like that, that is kind of like more a sign of exuberance. And by the way, if anyone is listening to this and they're into data and like maybe you guys at Masari, at some point I would love to see the, um, the uh, Bitcoin net unrealized P&L expressed in gold. Because at some point it won't really matter that we're looking at like 200% profit in dollar terms because there'll be inflation. If you have 30, 50% annual inflation, it won't be that impressive. But if you have like two X profits in gold express, well then maybe Bitcoin is a bit overvalued. Um, Mm -hmm. Anyway, but, but so yeah, right now value like sentiment is very, very healthy. Like if anything, investors are still a little bit scared uh, rather than, you know, exuberant. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think, you know, everybody's looking forward to the, the next puke phase, as you call it, um, being from, you know, 150,000 down to 30,000, uh, when, when again at 30,000, which is three times where we are right now, uh, every major financial publication will write about the demise of Bitcoin because oh, it just yeah, crashed 80%. Blue of obituaries for sure. Um, do you have a, uh, do you have a price outlook? I know, uh, you know, most people that's, that's just voodoo math, but you mentioned stock to flow and, and obviously you've been thoughtful about valuation approaches. You know, one, um, that I'm not sure if maybe you've taken a look at, we talked about Paul Tudor Jones. Um, what is the impact of having hedge funds as an asset class allocate 50 basis points or one point or, 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 or two whole points? of their portfolios into Bitcoin, right? Um, and, and what does that mean for the market move? Because it's not, um, 
it's much more than one to one, right? So one one dollar of net inflows equals much more than you know one one dollar of added market cap because there is a you know on, if you think about this as an order book, there are certain holders whose ask is much much higher than it is right now, right? Like my ask is uh, is not even going to be priced into the order book, um, and uh, and and many others are, are are the same. So if you if you think about you know billions of dollars of institutional flows. Into uh, into Bitcoin in particular, um, that's going to have just an enormous impact on the price. But it's much much harder um, to move the price than it was in in 2017. A because the markets are more efficient. You've got some derivatives infrastructure, um, and uh, and you know generally speaking, you know the the retail market does not have nearly as much uh, dry powder to, to to move the needle as, as the institutional base. Where um, have you done that analysis, number one, and, and, and what are your general thoughts on magnitude? Yeah, I, I put together this piece, which maybe that's the presentation you might have seen in 2013, uh, with some projections of at the time, Bitcoin was like $100. And so there were like these what if questions like, okay, like what if, you know, Bitcoin grows to uh, 1% of the gold, the, all the gold in the world? Or like, what if hedge fund invests 1% of their, you know, their AUM, asset center management, into Bitcoin? What could conceivably be the Bitcoin price? Um, and of course, these are like super rough estimates. But I think for, it was like, if hedge funds move 1% of their assets into Bitcoin, I, I need to look it up, but I thought it was like $40,000 Bitcoin or something like that. Like, so th mm -hmm. these are really valid analyses to look at potential sources of demand. Um, um, and, um, and, 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 and so uh, it's happening. Um, I don't know. I, I, I think that um, the macro story is just there and it all fits and right now of course there's more like directionally driven hedge funds that are looking into it uh but in terms of like where that could bring us for the price i wouldn't be surprised if this cycle this bull market which now we're back in a bull market uh i think you know for sure three four thousand dollars was the bottom i don't think we'll go below six thousand again um i mean i think a price target of like fifty thousand dollars is not not insane at all, especially given just how how crazy the the money printing is. I would even say like mm -hmm. between fifty and a hundred thousand. Um, and and the, the question is more like, what is the dollar going to be worth once we're at hundred thousand dollar Bitcoin? So like, you know, if if a bicycle costs instead of a, of two hundred dollars a thousand dollars, well, you have to kind of discount for that. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, at, at at a certain uh, price of Bitcoin, the price the the dollar equivalent becomes you know the the, the price of it, uh, Bitcoin could be infinite, so you know uh, I've I've said that you know Bitcoin is is either going to be worth you know zero or it'll basically be worth a million dollars a billion dollars a you know trillion dollars doesn't really matter because um, at some market cap it means that Bitcoin has gotten so big that it is more dominant than uh, certain fiat currencies right and reserve currencies and then it becomes Yep. Um, so uh, you know, I'm, I'm curious, you know, you've been bullish for so long, you've, you've been a constant in the industry for so long. What, if anything, keeps you up at night? Or um, you know, we've, we've de-risked halvings, we've de-risked um, you know, centralized exchange collapses, we've de-risked uh, you know, quite a bit of, of geopolitical risk. Um, not all of it, but, but a good chunk of it. What, um, 
does anything keep you up at night or, or, or kind of what, what's next on the hit list or checklist of things to, to de-risk as a, a Bitcoin investor? Yeah, lately I've literally been battling some insomnia and it's, it's, I'm not kidding. It's, it's cause I'm worried not so much about the pandemic. I'm just, I'm, I'm worried about, I mean, uh, to put it briefly, I'm worried about hyperinflation and how, how, unexpected that might be for the public at large and then basically how people are going to respond to that how it could change the political landscape uh all kinds of draconian measures that now are hard to imagine could become very very normal in an in an environment where we have super high inflation we're already seeing it with like this covid crisis like things like rent control uh you know like i mean who could have thought one year ago that right now, and I'm not making a case for all the landlords that they're all, you know, angels or anything, but who could have predicted that um, you cannot evict a tenant who is not paying their rent? You know, one mm-hmm. year ago, who could have imagined that like nationwide or even internationally speaking, that's now a reality. Mm-hmm. Uh, so price controls, rent controls. Uh, and then of course, you know, and 1931 comes to mind where, um, gold was confiscated. So all these scenarios where you just don't know, you know there's chaos coming, but the nature of chaos is that you can't really predict it. So you try to like keep your options open and, um, and, and, and just, you know, it's, 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 and I've been thinking about this stuff for 10 years and I still don't know, like what is the right thing to do and what is the right answer? And I'm just trying to kind of like accept that, like, you know, I think that, I've always been a little bit ahead of the curve when it comes to like seeing things coming and I'm trying to keep my options open. I mean, and, 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 um, but it's still like, it's like I have to process that like people are going to freak out, like they're going to freak out. And I just, in a way I'm trying to, I'm trying to prepare myself that that is just going to happen. And, and I, and I, in a way I have to put my horizon further than that. I have to like already look beyond and it's, it's going to be a period of like three, four or five years where, you know, debt is going to be wiped out, which is good. Like finally we're going to get rid of this Mm -hmm. debt burden. Uh, and there's going to be a new normal after that, but like during, that's just going to be a bit crazy. And I I lived in Latin America. Like I know it's not the end of the world. Like you can totally Mm -hmm. live through it and, and you can do well. Um, but it is just just strange to just painful reset. It's yeah. like Sandra feeling of like, oh my god, like this is this is it. Like this is where everybody's printing money and nobody's worried about it because they're all their 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 eyes are off the ball. They're looking at something else, which is I think the 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 coronavirus crisis, and they think this is the end of the world. And so, and and it's just and and now it's this cascade where okay, they're bailing out whatever X Y Z companies. But then because they're overextending, all the governments are overextending, we're going to get into this crazy debt crisis. And then central banks are going to buy up all the municipal bonds you can imagine. And, and they're going to rescue life insurance companies. And, and it's, just, it's just going to be off the rails. Like we're going to have trillion dollar bailouts every other month, I think, eventually. Mm-hmm. So anyway, um, that's what keeps yeah, me up. At. <laughs> yeah, I mean, a lot of what you're talking about applies to the U.S. and Europe. Uh, obviously, and, and those are two of the, you know, U.S. and, and, and Euro being you know, the two largest reserve currencies. So, you know, potentially the ones that will have the, the most chaos associated with them if, if there, there is something that goes haywire. Um, you mentioned uh, the seizure of gold um, in the 30s. You know, at, at what point, I, really, I haven't really heard of many people talking about this seriously yet, but at what point um, do you think people start 
truly taking seriously movements from uh, the, the U.S. or your zone or, or wherever they are. What do you mean with movements? Uh, like, you know, emigration. And it is, is confiscation. Well, I mean, if, if you're uh, in a uh, country where you are worried that your wealth is going to be seized, um, if there is a similar order that uh, impacts Bitcoin, you know, at, at some points uh, in, in the not too distant future, does that uh, put you in a position where you are, you are ready to pack your bags and, and move to more stable um, or more crypto friendly locations because you know the, the one thing that's interesting about um kind of where we are in the world right now like there, there is no more physical land right so you basically need to pick your uh your tallest midget <laughs> uh, in terms of like which uh which country uh, or, or which you know set of laws which jurisdiction you want to be bound to um and it strikes me that the time in some respects it may have passed already but in in others um if people are going to take seriously a move or, or, or think about, you know, where is the optimal, you know, safest and, and most secure um, location, they might have to make that decision relatively soon. Uh, and I'm, quite frankly, I'm surprised that we haven't seen it bubble up more in, um, in crypto circles because that, that tends to be the bleeding edge of, uh, of, of you know, folks that are thinking, um, thinking about how hostile actions could could impact them, their families, their portfolios, and, and just their personal property rights. Yeah, well, I mean, it's it's hard, but for me, I think optionality is just huge. Um, and and Nick Zabel has talked about this. And I, as far as I know, his family had to flee uh, Hungary; like they barely made it out. Um, mm-hmm. So definitely, definitely, there's there's people to learn from. Um, so, and in a way Bitcoin represents, like it's the ultimate optionality. Like it allows you to move your money around the world. You can even send it to a friend. Like even like, you know, you hear on television, like we're going to start confiscating blah, blah, blah. And like, you can pick up your phone right after and send all your Bitcoin to a friend who lives on the other side of the world. Like it's physically possible. So, so I think that's, that's important. And I think a lot of Bitcoiners kind of feel that that gives them some like uh, autonomy and, 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 and in a way it's too early to know where, where it's going to be bad and where it's going to be good. Um, so I think that's important. I think in a way also living in the U S offers actual optionality too, because like, I think that we've seen, um, peak power for Washington and the White House. I think that uh, we're we're sl- we're going to see a slow decline of of the kind of hold that they can have on just by issuing orders and stuff. I think eventually we'll have states that are just going to be like, "Sorry, but no, I'm not going to do that." Like, you know, what mm-hmm. are you going to do? Are you going to like invade me now? Come at me, bro. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but like, so I, that is something, that, you know, you have the ability to vote with your feet in the U.S. and you can just jump in your car and drive across the, the state line and then you're in another environment that still has a lot of similarities with rule of law and language and market structure. And so I think that uh, eventually it'll be hard for the federal government that has created this problem, you know, a lot of the problem is created by just this excessive debt and, and, and uh, this, this monetary destruction that it might be hard to keep their hold on, on everything. Uh, I mean, this is how empires d- dissolve, like, you know, Rome, 
the Roman Empire dissolved through inflation, um, the, the USSR did. I'm not saying the US will, but I'm saying like there is a limit to the kind of how far you can go with um, federal government orders. And in Europe, like there's diff it's a different trade-off. Like there's, you know, even there's even less centralized power. Like Brussels is kind of like a, a running joke. Um, and I think it will be become even more so. Uh, but then I think there the challenge is a little bit more on the rule of law size where, you know, what countries other than Switzerland have really strong rule of law that can weather even like a very severe uh, depression or crisis. And I don't really know. I think we'll have to wait and see. Um, but yeah, I mean, and then the other countries around the world, of course, you can. Yeah, you can go to Latin America, but like the, the you know, maybe maybe I would, you know, if things got really bad, I might go to Chile or something. Uh, but still, like, they have a history of dictatorships and stuff like that. And so you don't, you know, I, I think it's too early to, to place your bets. Like, you, the only thing you want to own is some call options and put options. Like, it's, it's all about optionality, I think, right mm -hmm. now. That's, that's how I see it. Um, to preserve your optionality, uh, what, um, what are your thoughts on uh, other assets or other crypto assets? You know, you've, you've been very outspoken um, uh, and to the negative about some other crypto assets. Is there, is there anything that would uh, get you excited about other types of cryptos or, or do you view Bitcoin in the context of a broader real world portfolio and, and, and just sticking with Bitcoin as the one digital asset that's a, a good portable um, and censorship resistant hedge to everything else going on? Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, I think Bitcoin, sh in, in the cryptocurrency realm, like I think you want to be overweight Bitcoin. Like you know, have like very, very significant part of your portfolio. But it's almost like in the gold world and in, in the world of precious metals, you want to own mainly gold. Of course, you can have some silver too and some miners and bet, like have that be like 30% max or something. Uh, mm -hmm. And of course, it's all, everybody's different and who knows, like, you know, um, but, but like, for example, it matters if you have a capital gains environment or not. Like, you know, if you, if you can easily trade out of coins, then maybe you can have a bit more exposure or something, or if you're a good trader or whatever. Um, but I do think generally speaking that the altcoins by and large are not going to come back, especially not as strongly as they did in 2017. So the Bitcoin dominance rate is never going to go, I think as low as it did back then. Um, I think a few coins are going to do well. I mean, I, I have a few Litecoin, like people are going to shoot me now <laughs> uh, because I, I just, as a play on, I've always kind of beat myself up uh, that my investments were driven by like my analysis and like, you know, this is what I think and this, mm -hmm. whatever, this technology doesn't really make sense. I'm not going to own it. Whereas I missed out, like I missed out on Ethereum because I wasn't thinking in terms of the market psychology you know, where it could go. And so I feel like if we're going to have a retail phase, again, people are, and, and Bitcoin inevitably is going to be labeled the digital gold. And so then are, they're going to be like with their unit bias, they're going to be like, one Bitcoin is so expensive. What else is there? So who knows? I just have a little bit, you never know. Um, and then another area that I'm, and, and I think my theory in general is that we never have the same market cycle twice. Like there's always different emphases. Like in 2013, it was not really about altcoins. The big, the big buzz was, um, was uh, mining 
everybody was ordering mining machines and that was the craze. And of course, Bitcoin went up as well. And then in 2017, it was altcoins. I think in the next cycle, we're going to have some other things that kind of bubble up together with Bitcoin. One area that I, that I've been looking at is the exchange. And again, I'm going to get, I'm going to get roasted for this, but <laughs> it's the, um, the, uh, IE, what is it called? IEOs, the exchange mm-hmm. tokens. The exchange uh, well, I mean, I, I don't think you get roasted for that. I mean, they're basically quasi securities because they've got burn yeah, models. That's why. Like, I mean, that's why uh, to me, like, uh, you know, I, I, I put together that report on, on the Bitcoin reformation mm-hmm. back then, like, you know, other than owning shares in the VOC, the, the, the East India company, which was the Bitcoin of the time, uh, what you could do is you could invest in basically local government bonds. And you had these like little local cities that sometimes needed to beef up their defenses against the Spanish army who was invading. And you could do very well. If, if you moderately invested in those, you could do really well. And so similarly, Bitcoin exchanges are going to be under fire. They're going to have to defend themselves. There's no sugar daddy central bank to bail them out. So, so that could be an area where you could you know, strategically, occasionally, uh, put some money to work in, in it. And they're always going to, they know that their main audience are Bitcoiners. So they're going to try to put together deals that are attractive, even for people that are used to the kind of returns that you see in Bitcoin. Um, so that's kind of my, my best analysis for the moment. I'm not really looking at a lot of altcoins, maybe also where things could go. Like we're going to see some IPOs, I think, because like mm-hmm. some of these, some of these early companies, they want their, executives and everybody else, the shareholders to be able to diversify because they're looking at the same reality we are. Maybe 80% of their wealth is wrapped up into company stock. Like that's too much. So they need liquidity. And so I think we'll see some, there'll be some interesting opportunities for uh, if you time it right to invest in some, some Bitcoin companies. Uh, but, but that's going to probably be a little, little while longer. Mm-hmm. Um, Tour, uh, it's always fascinating to hear your thoughts uh, on the industry. It just comes with so much historical context, both crypto, you know, specific, Bitcoin specific, and, and you know, much more broadly in a historical context. Um, where can people find you online, read some of your more recent research? Hey, I would say just Google my name. I think I have the still the two U's. T U U R, two U's. T U R, and then four E's in my last name. Um, yeah, the Bitcoin Reformation is still out there. If you haven't read it, I, I suggest you have a look. It's probably what the work I'm most proud of for the moment. And then I'm slowly working on a report that's going to focus more on inflation. Uh, probably in the next one or two months, it'll come out. Excellent. Well, looking forward to that one. Uh, tour, a true OG. Thank you very much uh, for joining. And thank you, everyone, for tuning in for this final installment of the special Bitcoin halving series uh, that we've done in conjunction with Bitstamp. Uh, tour, stay safe. Thanks again. And to all listeners who are listening, watching, be good. Till next time. Peace. That's a wrap. Thanks for listening. New episodes of Unqualified Opinions go live weekdays at noon Eastern time. You can follow me in the meantime on Twitter at 2BitIdiot if you want to continue the conversation or troll me. Otherwise, I'll see you next week.